to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokens and tokens and non-token lovers of liberty. It is Tuesday, February 21st, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode 892, and coming up on today's show, a very special episode. Uh, we're going to switch things around quite a bit today because we're not going to have the regular data segments or interview or cannabis focus segments. Instead, I'll be spending the middle of the show on a special radical rant detailing my testimony on Oregon Senate Bill 301. This is a bill that would recognize the workplace rights of cannabis consumers in Oregon. And then we'll give you the complete panel on California rules and regulations from ICBC San Francisco featuring Laura Ajax, Hezekiah Allen, and Luke Stanton. But first, let's get to the cannabis headline news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Tuesday, February 21st, 2017. Representative Dana Rohrbacher's Respect State Marijuana Laws Act of 2017 got two more bipartisan co-sponsors, bringing the total of co-sponsors to 14. Representative Peter Welch, a Democrat from Virginia, and Representative Mike Kaufman, a Republican from Colorado, joined six other Democrats and six other Republicans in sponsoring the bill. Representatives from legal marijuana states of Colorado, California, Oregon, and Alaska are listed as co-sponsors, as well as Nevada, but members of Congress from Washington, Massachusetts, Maine, and the District of Columbia are notably missing. Medical marijuana states of Vermont, Michigan, and Florida have a representative co-sponsoring the bill, as well as the prohibition states of Kentucky, Wisconsin, and Tennessee. Bills advanced in the Arkansas legislature to make changes to the voter-approved medical marijuana constitutional amendment, but they will require a two-thirds vote to become law. The most shocking of the bills would forbid members of the state's National Guard from participating in the medical marijuana program as patients or as caregivers. Another bill would increase the cost of medical marijuana by applying an additional 4% tax at the grow site and another 4% tax on retail sales in addition to other state and local sales taxes. Other bills deal with licenses, advertising and package restrictions, fines and fees, and oversight of the Arkansas Medical Marijuana Commission. A new poll from Talk Business and Politics Hendricks College finds that slim majorities in Arkansas oppose proposals to ban smoking in the medical marijuana program and to wait until the federal government approves marijuana as medicine. In North Dakota, an emergency measure supported by both Republican and Democratic leaders was passed last month to delay the law until the end of July. An 81-page bill, also backed by lawmakers on both sides, removed provisions that would have allowed growing pot as medicine and only allows patients to smoke it, provided a physician finds that no other form of marijuana, such as oils or pills, would be effective in providing the patient therapeutic or palliative benefits. 
Deputy State Health Officer R.V. Smith said scrubbing the provision that would allow people to grow their own medical marijuana cut the potential number of users in half, resulting in fewer overall regulations costs for law enforcement. A new University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll finds that a majority of Texans support the legalization of at least a small amount of marijuana. Legalization of small amounts of marijuana was supported by 32% and any amount by 21%, bringing overall support for personal use legalization to 53%. That's up from 42% who agreed with legalization in the same poll two years prior. Back in 2015, almost a quarter, or 24% of voters, opposed legalization for any purpose, including medical, while today's poll shows that opposition down to 17%. Support for medical marijuana sits at 30%. Presumably those who support legalization would support medical marijuana, bringing its overall support to 83%. One of the staunchest opponents to Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte's deadly war on drugs is now facing drug charges herself. Senator Leila de Lima was charged Friday by prosecutors accusing her of receiving bribes from detained drug lords. Prosecutors alleged de Lima, while she was Justice Secretary under President Benino Aquino, received huge bribes from detained drug lords to finance her senatorial campaign last year, and they say some of the drug lords would testify against her. But Padilla says the charges are politically motivated. When de Lima was a top human rights official, he said she tried unsuccessfully to have Duterte prosecuted for unlawful deaths occurring during his anti-drug crackdown while he was mayor of the city of Davao. Dutch lawmakers on Tuesday voted in favor of tolerating the cultivation of cannabis, a move that could bring an end to a key paradox of the relaxed Dutch policy on marijuana and hashish. Buying small amounts of pot at so-called coffee shops has long been tolerated in the Netherlands, but cultivating and selling the drug to the coffee shops themselves has remained illegal. A narrow majority in the lower house of the Dutch parliament voted in favor of the new law that would extend tolerance to growers as well as smokers. However, the bill still has to be approved in the upper house, known as the first chamber, where it is not clear if it can find a majority. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Tuesday, February 21st, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. The toxic fumes from this meth lab are seeping into Jamie's sinus cavity. Ammonia vapors invade her throat. Toxic gases fill her lungs. Jamie's body is deteriorating. And she doesn't even know it. Jamie, dinner. So, who has the drug problem now? Find out how meth affects you at drugfree.org slash This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day, exclusively on RadicalRust.com. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. 
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Half of what we spend on law enforcement, half of what we spend on the courts, and half of what we spend on the prisons is drug-related. And to what end? You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Georgia. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. Alcohol prohibition didn't work in the 1920s, and marijuana prohibition isn't working today. It's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. It's the fair thing to do. For more information, contact Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at norml.org. Total war against public enemies, number one. Ten federal criminal penalties for up to one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a Cheech and Chong show. Encourage people to use less drugs. I am ill. That was the point. I think it would be a mistake to legalize. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. Don't smoke marijuana. Earlier this morning, the Oregon State Senate Committee on Judiciary heard testimony on a new bill, Senate Bill 301, which would provide employment protection for lawful substance users. Here in the state of Oregon, we have a law that protects tobacco smokers. It says that a company cannot uh, deny employment or condition employment on whether or not a person smokes tobacco. And we are wanting to amend this law to include users of any lawful substance. Now, primarily we're talking about cannabis, but this would also protect people who are alcohol drinkers for that matter, or anybody who is using a prescription drug under the uh, direction of their employer. Now, the testimony took place today at eight in the morning down south in Salem, and I lack a car and didn't get a ride arranged in time to provide my testimony in person. However, I did submit written testimony that is now available through the Oregon legislature's website. I would like to read that testimony now. So to Chair Senator Floyd Przanski and the rest of the committee, thank you for accepting my testimony on Senate Bill 301. To me, this is the most important bill that has come through the Oregon legislature since I moved here in 2003. I'm originally a resident of Idaho. I am also a lifelong cannabis consumer. I deserve the same freedom from employment discrimination as any adult who drinks beer or smokes cigarettes, period. Throughout my life, I have worked mainly as a contractor performing temporary jobs in the field of information technology. I've worked desktop support, database programming, network analysis, website design, and technical training jobs for companies from Wall Street to Silicon Valley and everywhere in between. My strong work ethic, skill mastery, and keen intelligence kept me working steadily for 15 years, always receiving top marks in my employee reviews. As a cannabis consumer, however, I remained a contractor because most temporary IT placement companies did not require a test of my urine to determine if I was smart enough to run a computer. I voluntarily remained without health care, without a salary commensurate with my abilities, and without retirement benefits in order to maintain my freedom to consume cannabis rather than alcohol. In 2001, I married a woman in Boise. She suffered from chronic pain conditions. 
Through me, she discovered that cannabis relieved her pain better than the plethora of pills she had been taking. By 2003, we decided to move to Oregon to get her on the medical marijuana program. Not only would she be safe from arrest for her cannabis use, as her caregiver, my possession of marijuana would be protected too. But not for employment purposes. As you know, the Emerald Steel case decided that medical marijuana patients have no exemption from workplace discrimination for their marijuana use. My wife worked around that problem by using her health care coverage to secure a prescription for Marinol, the synthetic THC pill that is FDA-approved by prescription and indistinguishable from natural cannabis on most workplace drug screens. In Oregon, as all states, having that Marinol prescription is an automatic drug test pass for pot smokers. My wife never took a single pill. And by the way, I know many people across the country who do this. <clears throat> I had no such coverage or medical condition that would qualify for a Marinol prescription, so I continued to work underpaid temporary contract jobs that didn't drug test. Then in 2005, I began working on a contract for a medical device manufacturer then located in Beaverton. I excelled at my job, and the company always gave my work rave reviews. I was so beloved that when the contract ended, the company offered to bring me on as a full-time employee. My salary would almost triple, I'd get stellar health care and retirement benefits, and even a company expense account for the travel I'd be undertaking. But first, I'd have to pass a drug test. No problem, I thought. I'm married now and need to get serious and build a career. I quit using cannabis and began drinking fluids and exercising in the hopes that I'd flush out enough metabolites from my system to pass the standard urine test to land the job that I'd already been doing successfully for two years. The day of the test, I asked my human resources office where I had to go for my pee test. That's when I learned that the test wasn't for urine. It was for hair. I grinned at the HR staff and rubbed my nearly bald head and remarked, uh, that's going to be a bit difficult, eh? She deadpanned in response that they would find some hair for a sample. Find some hair? Like, uh, where? Well, I decided not to ask and just went to the appointment. There, I was met by a woman in nondescript clothing, no scrubs or medical wear, in a nurse sat's office that reminded me more of a construction trailer than a clinic. With no introduction or indication of her credentials, she ordered me to remove my shirt and stand with my arms raised. Then she took a single-bladed, disposable, 39-cent Bic razor and shaved the hair off my chest and armpits, collecting the hairs in a little plastic bag. Hair testing is a far more intrusive method of drug testing than urine screening. While even the P-tests are ludicrously unfair for the detection of marijuana metabolites up to a month after the subject ceases marijuana use, the hair tests are worse revealing marijuana use dating back up to 90 days. To compound the injustice, people of African or Mediterranean descent have coarser hair that will retain these drug metabolites longer than people of European or Asian descent. Drug tests, just like our drug laws, are racist in their deployment. Needless to say, I failed that hair test and lost the career opportunity of my lifetime. Worse, the results of the drug test failure became part of my record, preventing me from going back to the temporary contracting jobs I had been working. 
Since that failure, I dedicated my skills to ending discrimination against people like me, beginning with my medical marijuana work with Oregon Normal and culminating with my work in support of Measure 91's passage. Now, this Senate Bill 301 could finally bring my mission to a close in Oregon by ending the unnecessary and cruel discrimination against people like me who are hardworking, dedicated, highly skilled employees who've made the sensible choice to relax and unwind with cannabis rather than alcohol after hours. During my time at the medical device manufacturer, I worked with two young men who were some of the most gifted computer analysts I've ever met. They were also big fans of Oregon's craft brewed beer. Nobody ever tested them for their alcohol, and they always showed up for work and did a fine job while there. That's all the consideration Oregon's cannabis consumers are asking for, the same standards and expectations we extend to beer drinkers. I never consumed cannabis before work or during work, just as my employer expected my coworkers not to drink craft brew before work or during work. Opponents of Senate Bill 301 will offer all manner of scare tactics to derail this bill. Any careful consideration of their fears should be placed in the context of what we accept for alcohol and tobacco. For instance, opponents may claim that without drug testing for cannabis, those employees will be a drain on productivity. There is no reliable science to back up that assertion. However, I simply think back to that Beaverton company where I worked, where they had built with company funds an outdoor shelter so that four times a day, 20 minutes apiece, employees with nicotine addiction could step outside to get their fix without being rained upon. I fail to see how cannabis consumers' productivity is such a concern when cigarette consumers were costing that company 80 minutes of productivity per smoker per day. And we're not even asking for such smoke breaks at work. We just don't want to be penalized for our smoke breaks after work. Opponents may claim there will be greater health care costs for companies that don't discriminate against cannabis consumers. And again, there is no reliable science to back up that assertion. However, there is reliable science to show that cannabis consumers consume less opiate prescriptions, use less alcohol, have lower body mass indices, and have less risk of head, neck, and lung cancer. They will also point to federal law and the Schedule One designation for cannabis. Well, that wasn't reason enough for Oregon to reject marijuana legalization. It shouldn't be reason enough to bring legalization to its logical conclusion and not treat alcohol and cannabis consumers with equal respect and dignity. They may bring up the federal drug-free workplace laws, but they won't mention that those laws require most employers to simply have a posted policy forbidding drug use on the job and do not mandate any sort of drug screening for anybody but workers in certain safety-sensitive positions. In conclusion, opponents of Senate Bill 301 have no argument against it that wouldn't be a better argument for discriminating against employees who drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes, except that the federal government accept those latter two drugs and not cannabis as legal substances. In Oregon, we know better that marijuana is safer than alcohol and that the consumers of both substances can be excellent employees. Thank you for your time. My name is Russ Belville. So that is the... Uh, the testimony that I submitted to the Oregon Department, uh, the Oregon Judiciary Committee, in order to uh, try to get 
marijuana recognized as a legal substance for people to use and not be discriminated against for that use of a lawful substance. However, there are those in Oregon who wish to continue this discrimination and are fighting against this. Uh, one such person who submitted testimony this morning is Randy Philbrick. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Randy Philbrick used to be the head of Oregon's Project SAM, the Smart Approaches to Marijuana, the committee that's uh, opposing marijuana legalization across the country. He was the former head of Project SAM until some of his tweets about the Orlando massacre got him canned. But he is still fighting against marijuana in Oregon. And he wrote uh, to the committee in opposition to Senate Bill 301. Uh, his first objection was that it violates an employer's right to free enterprise. Randy writes, quote, in a free enterprise system, an employer can conduct their business, including to create a policy that is right for them without interference from the government. Prior to the illegal passage of the bill that created the law that exempts tobacco smoking from discrimination, there were several companies that conditioned employment based on one's use of tobacco and alcohol. Um, so Randy's not just arguing that employers ought to be able to ban employees who smoke pot. He wants to go back to the days of banning employees that smoke tobacco. He says, quote, it has been proven that tobacco and alcohol use has cost employers lots of money in missed days for health-related reasons and also lost money for workplace accidents where alcohol was a factor. Now we're starting to see the same findings with marijuana. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> we are not seeing the same findings with marijuana. But he concludes by saying, uh, bottom line, the bill cannot pass. I am a married father of two school-age kids and I work in the industrial sector. I do not want to have to worry if my coworkers are high and could possibly injure me along with themselves, which would take money away from my family as well if I am not able to work due to someone else's negligence. Well, folks, and Randy, if you're listening, uh, I hate to break it to you, but you've been working with people who've used drugs all your life. The only difference that happens after SB 301 passes is that those employees won't have to stop smoking pot for two or three weeks, uh, drink a whole lot of cranberry juice, do a lot of exercise to flush their system, or go on the internet and buy some powdered urine and one of those little uh, hand warmers and keep that on your person anytime you might be popped for a, a drug quiz, or packing along someone else's urine in a little bottle, and if you're a woman, hiding it inside your vagina before you go take the drug test, or if you're a man wearing a fake cock so that you can hide the fake urine and the hand warmer in that cock for your little drug test. People have been beating these drug tests ever since they were designed. All SB 301 is going to do is make it so those people don't have to fake those, uh, beat those drug tests anymore. They, they are the same employees you've always been working with. And just like people who drink, most of us, the vast majority of us, do not show up to work on our substance and do not use our substance while we are at work. Another group that's testifying against the Senate Bill 301 in Oregon would be Associated Oregon Industries, which writes in opposition to SB 301 that it's preempted by the United States Constitution. My goodness, I, I don't know where that's at. Article 1, Article 2. Uh, maybe it's one of the amendments. Does anybody remember the amendment that 
in the U.S. Constitution that says uh, employers have to piss test people? I, I don't remember that part of my Constitution. What they're saying, though, is that there's a supremacy clause. And since the federal government says marijuana is a Schedule One drug, uh, we can't say that employers can't test for it. Well, if marijuana being a Schedule One drug determined what we could do as Oregonians, we couldn't have passed the medical marijuana law. We couldn't have passed the uh, legalization law. That seems like a pretty flimsy uh, excuse there. Here's one that Associated Oregon Industries brings up that you'll hear many times in the drug testing debate. They say, quote, SB 301 is preempted by the Drug Free Workplace Act. Folks, that is absolutely not true. This is one that is used uh, all the time to try to deflect the argument about uh, drug-free workplace uh, and and drug testing. First of all, the Department of Labor ended the drug-free workplace program back in 2010. So they're talking about a program that doesn't even exist at the Department of Labor anymore. But when it did did exist, and and the Drug-Free Workplace Act does still exist, here's what it mandates. In the Drug-Free Workplace Act of 1988, all organizations are re- that are covered are required to provide a drug-free workplace by taking the following steps. One, publish and give a policy statement saying you can't use or sell drugs at work. Two, apply a drug-free, work, uh, drug-free awareness program so managers can see what might happen to offer counseling and rehab and assistance programs for those employees with a drug problem. Notify employees that they have to uh, have a they have to abide by the drug free workplace program. Notify a contractor or grant agency that they have to uh, that an employee's been convicted of a criminal drug violation in the workplace. Not if they get popped with a bag out on the street, but if they get busted for drugs in the workplace, got to notify your contractor grant agency. Number five, impose a penalty on or require satisfactory participation in a drug abuse assistance or rehab program if a employee is convicted of a drug law violation at work. And number six, make an ongoing good faith effort to maintain a drug-free workplace by meeting requirements of the act. Did you hear me say urine test anywhere in that little screed? It's not there. I can give you the website. I'm looking at it right now. United States Department of Labor Drug-Free Workplace Advisor. Nothing in this requires an employer to issue a drug test as a condition of an employment or keeping employment. So that's a pretty flimsy excuse as well. Associated Oregon Industries. They continue by saying that, quote, SB 301 is prevent, preempted by federal laws relating to railway workers. That is a red herring because SB 301 does provide an exception for companies and employees whose requirements of their job involve work, workplace drug testing. Finally, they say SB 301 doesn't uh, or supposes a testing technology that does not exist. They say there is no technology to tell whether an employee is impaired on the job under marijuana. And that's the fucking point. You can't tell that we're impaired. But they're saying since we can't tell that anyone's impaired, we need to test everybody with a test that doesn't tell whether they're impaired? Makes no sense whatsoever. And they're lying. Since 1990, 
There have been workplace impairment tests that are computer-based and work off a person's own baseline that will detect not only impairment based on drugs or alcohol, but impairment based on fatigue or sickness or emotion or any number of factors that we should want to eliminate in the workplace. Pass SB 301. There's no argument against it. There's not a better argument against tobacco and alcohol. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The International Cannabis Business Conference comes to San Francisco, California on February 16th and 17th, 2017. The ICBC San Francisco, Northern California's first business-to-business event since the recent historic election, will bring together top state regulators and industry leaders to discuss permits, business models, and opportunities within the newly enacted laws and landscape. Of course, the ICBC also famously offers some of the best cannabis industry networking, leveraging our worldwide following to connect wholesalers, brands, distributors, investors, and strategic partners. And don't forget to come early for our VIP reception and stay late for our legendary after party. Join us for the longest continuously running cannabis business conference in California at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square, the one and only International Cannabis Business Conference. Visit internationalcbc.com for tickets today. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. As a freshman member of the Oregon legislature, I was able to vote as my state was the first to decriminalize. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. (coughs) Or at least they aim you say that yeah baby (laughs) a public service message from the rust belleville show marijuana legalization is just the beginning of a process of restoring our natural rights to the cannabis plant Join us now as we learn more about the rules, regulations, and court decisions that are shaping the landscape of legal marijuana in this edition of Pot Public Policy. Take you back to ICBC San Francisco and this California regulations panel. Uh, Give it up for Sunshine Lencho, everyone. Yo, make some noise for Sunshine Lencho! Thank you, Alex. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, As you'll see in your program, this panel is supposed to give you insight into the current status of regulations and laws in California. Um, And I'm happy to be joined by Luke Stanton, if everyone will raise their hand since we don't have name tags. Luke Stanton, he's managing partner of Frontera Law Group, which is based in Sherman Oaks and provides business and legal advice to investors, business owners, and potential new uh, market entrants uh, throughout California. To Luke's right, we have Hezekiah Allen. And Hezekiah Allen, um, for those of you who don't know, is the executive director of the California Growers Association, representing farmers in California. Uh, We are really, really, really grateful that our third panelist, Ms. Amber Morris, was able to join us. She's not in your program um, as she uh, wasn't uh, clear on whether or not she would be here this morning. And we're really happy to have Ms. Morris with us because she is branch chief 
of Cal Cannabis Cultivation Licensing within the California Department of Food and Agriculture. So that means she's responsible for our farmers and ensuring that the regulations around cultivation in California roll out as smoothly as possible given uh, her mandate. And yeah, so thank you very much for being here, Ms. Morris. And last but not least, we are joined by uh, Ms. Lori Ajax, who is our first ever chief of California's Bureau of Medical Cannabis Regulation. Thank you very much for being here, Ms. Ajax. So the structure of our panel this morning will be to begin with a conversation with regulators. We're not going to assume that people in this room have spent the last two years following the MCRSA rollout and Prop 64. So there'll be a, a general overview from each of them about what each of their departments does and what they're responsible for. Then we'll dive into the details around that licensing process, and then we'll open it up to questions um, from the audience. So if you'll reserve your questions until the question segment, I think a lot of them will be answered uh, in our question and answer portion. So to keep things moving, I'm going to start with Ms. Ajax, and we're going to just get a general overview of what is the Bureau of Medical Cannabis Regulation, and what are you responsible for? Well, thank you very much, and good morning, and it's really an honor to be here. We're always excited to come address uh, groups like this so we can get information out there on what we're doing. Uh, we've been busy, uh, if you've noticed. There's um, a lot of stuff going on, but I'll go over a brief overview of what the Bureau is responsible for. When I got hired back in February, it's been a year, and it feels like it's been like years, actually. But anyway, it's been a year, and we were first tasked with the, the medical side of it, uh, the licensing and enforcement of uh, medical cannabis and putting that statewide regulatory structure in place. And that included the Bureau's responsibility on licensing is distributors, the testing laboratories, the transporters, and the dispensaries. So that was our focus. And then, as all of you know, a couple of months ago that changed, and our role has expanded to the adult use market. So now we are responsible for both medical and adult use in putting those uh, – the statewide structure in place for both. So some additions, as a lot of you know, there's a lot of similarities between Proposition 64 and the Medical Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, but there's a few key differences. Uh, one is there's no transporter license under adult use, but it's still under medical, and then there's the addition of the microbusiness license. So we're also responsible for that. Um, also, if, you, if you've noticed, testing laboratory goes back under the Department of Public Health. So a lot of those differences we're hoping are going to align up during the legislative process, and those things are going to align. So the, the goal here is that we're regulating one system for both adult and medical. And I think everybody here would agree that that makes sense. You, you don't want to have two different systems. I think it would be... Uh, confusing, it would be expensive, and it just doesn't make sense. So uh, that's our goal here. Um, and I know you want you want me to talk a little about the regulations and where yeah, we're at. I, I was going to um, ask you actually to give everybody a quick civics lesson if people haven't been following. So we passed sure. these statutes, and now you have to pass regulations. And so. Explain what happens once a statute passes for everybody. Sure. So uh, the Bureau is also tasked with the, being the lead agency um, to coordinate uh, 
all of the cannabis uh, activity. And so I, I'm very fortunate to work with Amber and the Department of Public Health. They're not here today, but I, I want to mention they're responsible for the manufacturers. Uh, so they're, they're an important part in this. So a lot of us, we meet like all the time to talk about everything, but especially regulations. Uh, as you know, we keep talking about it and everybody's like, okay, we want to see those regulations. We get that. Uh, so we've been developing uh, the medical side for quite some time. Uh, uh, the Bureau and Food and Ag and Department of Public Health, we held uh, pre-regulatory sessions all over the state, and we were uh, talking about specific concepts and ideas that we had for the regulations, and we encouraged people to come back to us with feedback. So we've looked at a lot of that feedback, and we are ready to uh, – Release our regulations. Uh, we're probably looking at the next, uh, you're going to see the next six to eight weeks. Uh, hopefully by the early April, those will be out. Uh, there are proposed regulations. I think that's important to note. There are proposal, and then you will have the ability, as once we propose them, you Im we immediately go into a 45-day comment period. Uh, that is the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, that is... Uh, mandatory for all of us so you can read that text and then comment to us. We also will be holding hearings once again across the state to take your comment. So I think it's important for all of us to know that those are proposals and that doesn't, it can be changed. So if we didn't get something quite right or it doesn't make sense or there's a better way to do it, we want to hear from you. So it's really important that people get involved and read that. And some of the things, I think it's, we talk about the regulations a lot and I don't know that we talk a lot about what's going to be in those regulations. So examples as our licensing fees for all three of us, that's going to be outlined in the, the regulations and how that's going to look like for each license type. Uh, for us the, at the Bureau, uh, the dispensaries, you're going to see regulations addressing security requirements, storage requirement, employee requirements. Uh, so a variety of things, the distributor and transporter, there's going to be, uh, you know, storage requirements for them and how the distributor is going to act, what, what they're going to have to do as the quality control agent. For the transporter, you're going to see regulations detailing the rules for vehicle requirements. So they, they cover a wide range of things. So it is a lot to read, but we really hope, we really encourage everybody to get involved. So that's for the medical, and I think it's an important to note that because we still now have two statutes, we are going forward with the medical regulations. Now, a lot of this is going to stay the same because it's going to, when we talk about security requirements for a dispensary, it's not going to change based on the adult use statutes because it's going to be similar. So we're going to go through that process, but... As we all know, there are going to be some legislative changes. Because we don't know what those changes are right now, we are going to hold off on our, our adult use regulations, and all three licensing authorities plan to wait to see what that legislation is. Once we have that information, then we are going to go forward and propose our Proposition 64 regulations probably early fall, around September, and we're going to use the emergency authority we have to do emergency regulations. So we have that authority in the statute, and that means we'll propose those regulations. We'll still go through public comment, but it happens after the fact. They go into place first, and then we deal with public comment. And we're doing that because we need to make 
meet our goals and statutory mandates of January 1st, 2018. We must have those regulations completed by then. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're all confident that we can meet that timeline to have those regulations finalized. That's wonderful. Um, so just to uh, follow up, when the regulations are released, will people be able to provide comment electronically in addition to attending one of the hearings for people who might want to remotely provide their feedback? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Perfect, perfect. So um, I heard from a bird that um, our head of the Department of Consumer Affairs stepped down this week, and I must ask, does that change anything about your process within the Bureau, or is it just sort of an isolated um, non-issue as far as California's cannabis community is concerned? So it's not going to change our timelines. Yeah. We're still headed, but we are sorry to see yeah. uh, Director Kadani go. He's been a big supporter of the Bureau, and um, but he has another opportunity. Uh, so I'm excited for him, too, but we're sorry to see him go. Okay, wonderful. So um, in terms of regulation, people may be familiar with the fact that under MCRSA, there is a uh, an ability for our uh, regulators to deny a license to an application. They may deny an, a license to, uh, to an applicant who has a past criminal conviction. When we're looking at some of our biggest brands here in California, a lot of them are actually operated by people who have felony convictions on their record and may not have petitioned to have that expunged yet now that we've passed Prop 64. So for people in the audience who are very much interested in what that standard will be and how they will be able to determine whether or not they should proceed with the application process as it's going to be costly um, to some people, what sorts of criteria or what will the Bureau be looking at from a licensing perspective to see if someone has rehabilitated themselves or, you know, what generally can people start working on now um, to anticipate the January 1 deadline for applications? So we get this question for, for us a lot. It's, this is really an important issue for all of you, and, and we, we understand that. Uh, so part of our regulations uh, when it comes to general licensing of what an applicant is going to be required is going to be we're going to detail what that rehabilitation criteria is. And I think um, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it's great if you have a rehabilitation certificate or an expungement that you could provide to us, but we understand those are very difficult to get. And depending on what jurisdiction you are, it can take, it's a, it's, it's a time consuming process. So there's other ways. If you have that, that's fine and you can submit that, but we're going to have some specific rehabilitation criteria such as passage of time, maybe some of the circumstances surrounding it. Uh, what has changed in your, what has changed in your life? Um, and we're going to look at all of that information. We're going to allow you to submit whatever information you think is re relevant to that conviction. But I think it's also important to note that we're, we want to include everybody in this process. It's, it's not, we want everybody to be able to apply and to be able to come to the, to any of the licensing authorities. And so it is not in any way, we do not want to, to exclude folks for something they did years ago that's now legal. That, that just wouldn't make sense. So we understand that. And, And so that is where I'm going to tell you, when you see those regulations, we want your input. What we've put down on some of the things we're going to be looking at, please provide us that input, because I think it's important for us to hear from you, especially on this issue. 
Wonderful. Um, so with that, I think we'll turn to Ms. Morris and get an overview of Cal Cannabis and understand a little bit about what her um, department is doing as it pertains to um, cultivation. So if you just want to launch into talking just generally about what your regulatory scope is so people can understand how you're bifurcated. Sure. Good morning. Hi. Um, the people in the audience, I would like to see um, how many do, farmers do we have? Raise the hands. All right. Our people. So um, at the end of 2015, Governor Brown signed the Medical Act into um, law, and California Department of Food and Agriculture was tasked with licensing farmers. Um, so I was hired in March of last year, and like Lori said, I don't think I've slept since, <laughs> and we're not sleeping until 2018. Um, but uh, we are tasked with licensing cultivators. Uh, basically, I look at my job as having three major tasks. The first is regulations, and I want to expand on the civics lesson here. So there's laws that are put into place, and those laws can be put into place by the legislature in Sacramento or the voters. So we have laws that were created by both for cannabis, and what our departments do, basically, is we don't make things up. We only have authority under the laws that exist. So what the legislature put together and what the voters passed is what we're basically clarifying in our regulations. So when you think about what we're doing and some of the things that we will be covered in our regulations, consider that it all stems from the laws that were passed. Um, and I just think that that's... Very important to note because I get a lot of comments about why this, why that. And there's some things that are out of our control as a regulatory agency. Um, if you want the laws changed, that's, uh, that needs to go through the legislature or through a vote. If you want regulations changed, though, so if our regulations come out and they just don't make sense, like Lori said, it's a beautiful public process and we want you to participate. Um, it's very rare, I think, that any industry gets an opportunity to help create the ground rules for their industry. And we're in that point right now. It's a really exciting time in cannabis. And I think everybody should embrace that, that it is, it's not happening to you, it's happening with you. So just keep that in mind. Um, for all of us, we do have listservs that are available on our websites. And so instead of trying to figure out when our regulations are released, if you sign up for our automatic emails, you'll be notified immediately when those are available to the public for review and comment. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody's very aware of that, and I think I'll be stressing that more as I talk. But it's, it's very important that everybody understand that it's an amazing opportunity right now, and I think a lot of people think it's happening to them, but we want you to be part of this. Um, so licensing cultivators, we've visited a lot of grow sites. Um, I've been in the ag industry for a while, so I know what growers do. They grow plants. And that's what you guys do. So we just had to learn the nuances of your businesses so that when we created our regulations, when we were in the process of creating our regulations, we made sure that we did that, keeping in mind your current business practices so that we could stick, um, so that we could streamline our regulations to what's currently happening as much as we can. Um, while we're creating our regulations, CDFA is also responsible for conducting an environmental analysis. So Part of the reason that the legislature passed the laws was to protect California's environment from the cultivation of cannabis. And part of our responsibility as the Department of Agriculture is to analyze what impacts our program will have on California's environment. So we have hired a consultant because we've got this much time and not enough staff to do it ourselves. Uh, but we work very closely with them. And they're basically looking at the impacts of the statewide program. So they're looking at 
as the state licensing authority, what impacts will our program have on the environment? Are they significant? And if they are significant, we will be mitigating those. So I just um, want you to be aware of that in our, our regulatory process. We are analyzing the impacts on the environment. And again, if we find significant impacts from our program, they'll have to be mitigated to a less than significant level, if that makes any sense. Um, the third thing, so regulations, the environmental analysis, and then also we've got some technology programs, systems, sorry, I'm learning IT words, systems. Um, we have two systems that we're standing up right now, uh, Lori and Chief Ajax and the Department of Public Health. Uh, we're all putting up licensing uh, systems that will allow you to apply online. Yay! Because <laughs> we're in 2017, right? We really want to have that available to you by the time we start licensing in January 1st, 2018. Um, that's a big goal of ours, and I think it's, it's uh, a goal that we can achieve. Um, the Department of Food and Agriculture is also responsible for standing up the track and trace system uh, for the state. So we won't be the only ones using it. All the licensing authorities and some of our peripheral agencies like um, CHP, who else? Uh, Board of Equalization for tax purposes. Um, so several state agencies will be using it, but we are the lucky department who got tasked with standing it up for everybody. So we're working really quickly on that. Um, we've been meeting with the other states to determine what they're doing, not to mirror them, but to learn from their experiences. Um, we're not just meeting with the regulatory side because we do want to know, is it valuable to the compliance of following the regulations? But we also have been talking to the growing community to understand what works for you, what doesn't work for you, how can we make this uh, less onerous, um, but still make sure that we're protecting public health and the environment. So we've been working really quickly on that. Um, technology, you know, it's a, it's a big lift. And luckily, I've got a fantastic team of people and the California Department of Technology, who even knew there was one. I didn't until, <laughs> I don't know, six months ago. Uh, they stepped in, and they're really helping coordinate all the different departments who are involved with the track and trace system. So that is, in a nutshell, what we're up to. Great. So mm -hmm. um, it's a little silly to ask this question on such a rainy day. I admire everyone being here because usually if it rains, I stay in my house. Um, but if you haven't followed California closely, we were in a historic drought until recently. And part of, I imagine, the CEQA analysis and the mitigation will be around water usage. And this isn't necessarily a question that she will answer, but it has to be asked publicly. So what considerations about water will be uh, factored into the apportioning of licenses, the license types by the department, if any, um, by Cal Cannabis. So in the statute, if you read the medical act, I'm not sure if it made it into adult use, but right now we're focusing on medical. So medical has a lot of language about what's required for water. Um, and that is tasked to the State Water Resources Control Board. That's a big old mouthful. But if you go to our website, CalCannabis, .cdfa.ca.gov. We have links to all these sister agencies so you can get to their page. I think if you just Google Cal Cannabis, it'll be easiest for you to get there. Um, but the, the Water Board is basically tasked with developing principles and guidelines for water quantity and quality. And then there's also uh, another task at the regional level for waste discharge. So the Water Board and the regional... Water Quality Control Board are working right now on developing um, those regulations or, or principles and guidelines for the cannabis industry. So I would suggest that you keep um, in the loop about what they're doing. I know they also have a listserv 
So if they do anything that's important, they'll notify you through that. Um, and water is one of the things that is being considered in our environmental analysis. So it's definitely a huge consideration in California. Where's the water coming from? If you have discharge, how are you getting rid of your water? Um, diversions, if you are diverting water to use for your farms, um, all of that is being worked on by the water board. We're working really closely with them. And sometimes when we go out to do scoping meetings or public uh, outreach, we invite them to come along with us or they ask to come along with us because, you know, we're trying to reach the same audience. So if you're going one place, you can uh, two birds, one stone. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. So I'm going to transition into talking about a different type of farming. I know some people in here are urban farmers. Um, and one consideration when we're talking about the environment and um, who is seen as a farmer in our state, um, a lot of people forget that our cities are actually places of cultivation. So, um, Ms. Morris, how different do you foresee regulation being for the urban farmer at the state level, um, particularly with the cottage license type that was authorized last year? And are you going to have to make some adjustments to the economic analysis and licensing in that regard? Okay, so I'll yeah, talk so on the urban farming first. Um, so if you're not aware already, before you come to the state to get a license, you first must get a local license. So if your local agency is not cannabis friendly, I would also encourage that you reach out to them. Your um, elected officials are there to represent everyone, and if they don't know what you want, um, they can't help you. So if you, if you don't have friendly locals, you, I would encourage you to work with them. But the urban farming, basically, CDFA is not going to be addressing zoning. So I think in a lot of cities, they're going to limit where cannabis can be farmed, you know, whether it's in an industrial area or, you know, some places may be a little bit more um, liberal in where they allow grow sites. But it's, it's something that you should be involved with if you're in an urban area to determine, you know, if it fits within your business model. Um, I do see also that in the urban areas, well, from what I've seen, there's much more indoor grows. Um, and, and what I expect is that the analysis from the environmental analysis will have different mitigations for those farmers that are indoor and those farmers that are outdoors. You have to consider, you know, the energy and the greenhouse gases that are, that are consumed and emitted from the indoor growers and outdoor growers have a whole different set of environmental concerns. So it's, I would see that there is, there's most likely going to be um, different mitigations for the different farmers. And the second question you had? Uh, well, actually, I was going to transition to co-op oh, models next. Okay. You, you, I think you covered it for, pretty thoroughly. So um, for the people who are new to the industry, part of the Prop 215 and SB 420 system was a collaborative, cooperative model. Um, and activists helped each other in cultivating and providing patients with medication specifically under you know, our medical regime. So... If a co-op model is approved this legislative session, um, I note that it's not explicitly in our, reg in our statute right now. How do you think this will change Cal Cannabis's activity um, with respect to evaluating applications and regulation of businesses? Well, Sunshine, I've learned that we just have to be flexible with the, what the legislature is going to throw at us. Um, there's a lot of bills that have been introduced recently, and the department stands, uh, you know, we're keeping very close eye on what's happening, and um, I guess, honestly, I, I choose right now to focus on the things that I'm tasked with, with yeah. the understanding that we need to evaluate the things that are coming. I did want to go back to the cottage-type yeah. uh, growers. Yeah. So the Department of Food and Agriculture represents all agriculture, and it's very important to not just um, our program but also our executive team that there's room at the table for the small growers. 
So we're doing our best with uh, the statute limitations that we have. So the laws mandate specific things that we can't change. Um, but there are some things that are within our control that we can help uh, the small growers out with. And we're, we're doing what we can to make sure that um, we have room at the table for our legacy growers. And when we're talking uh, cottage cultivation, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's a grow that's under 500 square feet. So we're talking pretty small. So there's uh, 500 square feet. I think it's 2,500 indoor. Mm -hmm. Mixed lighter greenhouse. greenhouse. There's over 19 license types, so I'm not going to put people on the spot to memorize all that square footage. And for me, I'm not spatial, so it's not helpful. Um, So my final question for you is with respect to the um, type 3 license under MCRSA. uh, there, this is the only license type under MCRSA where we have written into the statute that there will be limits as to the number of licenses. And I know some people are getting local authorizations for this specific license. So when can we expect to learn of the number of licenses that you expect to issue under Type 3, um, and how will you be determining these limits? So the criteria which we limit Type 3 under will be in our regulations, And what we've considered in the process of making the decision of how we limit those licenses, so again, I didn't decide out of the clear blue sky that we were going to limit these. Law says that I had to. Thank you, legislature. (laughs) Um, And what we're considering is current business models. So like Sunshine said, there are some local governments who have already decided to move forward without understanding first the state's criteria in which it will be limited. Um, So we've taken that into consideration Um, We've taken into consideration what's out there right now. Um, The environmental impacts are definitely something that we look at. Uh, All the comments that we received, that was one of the questions that we asked directly to um, the stakeholders when we went out throughout the state in September. How do you think we should limit this? So we received hundreds of responses, and we've taken all of the responses from the people who will be impacted by the decision and considered that input to make our decision. So you'll see it when the regulations come out. I wish I could tell you now, but we've drafted a decision. It may change before it goes out. So unfortunately, I can't share it now. No scoops, unfortunately. (laughs) I was hoping for some early morning uh, (laughs) exhaustion induced (laughs) uh, disclosures. Um, So uh, we're going to transition over to the business side or the farming side um, and get some thoughts from uh, both Luke and Hezekiah. So I'm going to start out with Hezekiah Allen. Again, for those of you who didn't hear me earlier, he's the executive director of California Growers Association representing our farmers. Um, so, has in view of the pending legislation that you track very closely um, on behalf of your constituency and our existing regulatory scheme that Ms. Ajax and Ms. Morris just outlined for us, um, what are the top three issues, I'll keep you to three, um, that you want to resolve in the next six to nine months between you know, the April regulatory initial regs and the September emergency regs? I'm going to take four. Okay, fine. All right, fine. cool. Um, you know, from our perspective, there there are a number of issues. Obviously, I think the differences between Proposition 64 and the Medical Cannabis and Regulatory Safety Act is, is really the big question. Um, clear rules and certainty are, are, are what we're really looking for at this point. That's Hezekiah Allen from the uh, California Growers Association. We'll continue with Hezekiah's three or four things he wants to see from regulation in hour two. We'll present the rest of the panel. It also includes the question and answer session. So you want to stay tuned for that, especially if you're interested in what's going to be happening in the California Green Rush. 
For those of you listening on the podcast, that's all the time we got for hour one. Thanks for joining us, and we will have the VIP system up just as soon as we can so that you can get that uh, subscription to the hour two podcast. In the meantime, you'll just have to listen live on Cannabis Radio or watch on YouTube at RadicalRust.com. For everyone here at Delta 9 Studios in beautiful legal Potland, Oregon, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, take care of each other, tokers! This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down.